The following program contains graphic material, including offensive language. Your discretion is advised. Hi, everybody. Coming up, Nicole tells your fortune looking ahead. So get out your crystal and stay tuned with Mistress Nicole. All dressed in leather, you won't forget her. You want to love her and you won't let go. Who's that woman, crazy woman, Nicole? All right. Welcome to a Wednesday, everyone. No, no silly song to start today just because we've got a full a full show. Um, Desi Doyen is here. You know Desi from the broadcast and, of course, the Green News Report. And, uh, well, she and Brad were in the studio just a couple of weeks ago, but I threatened at that time to have her back on to talk about climate-related issues because, you know, most of the media is not covering it. So um, it was supposed to be Monday. And now, bottom line is she's here. Actually, she was here last night. We taped it um, because, you know, she and Brad are busy putting together today's broadcast. So, um, but yeah, pretend it's live. You won't know the difference. Yeah. Anyway, um, before before we bring Desi on, though, there was some breaking news today. Um, quite a bit of it. And um, one the main story that I really that that hit me in the gut this morning, um, we'll deal with more tomorrow. And that is at the age of 101. We lost a national treasure today in Norman Lear. I never met, never met him in person, but I did get to interview him once. It was 2007. I was working at WINZ in Miami. And in fact, I hadn't yet taken over the morning show. That was to come in a few months. But at the time, I was working with a, a Jim DeFeedy, who you may have heard on this program once or twice. Um, one of the best journalists in, in, South, in Florida, in the country, actually. And um, so... Um, uh, Jim, I was producing his morning show and, um, that day we had Norman Lear booked cause he had an event coming to Florida to, to Miami. And that day Jim was sick. He, he had health problems and he called and, and said, Nicole, you're, you're, um, you're on today. And I'm like, this was the first time I had hosted that show. And my very first interview, and I was not prepared, was with Norman Lear. So I will play that for you tomorrow in the first half hour. And then Howie Klein will be here, as he usually is on Thursdays. And, you know, Howie sits on the board of People for the American Way, which is the organization that Norman Lear founded. So I'm sure Howie's got to have at least one Norman Lear story to share with us. So we'll do that tomorrow, okay? Second story of the day, another mass shooting, this one at the University of Las Vegas. All I know is the shooter is dead. We don't know about casualties. Um, You know, it's another day ending and why. I don't know that we should have expected anything different, but here we are. Story number three, Kevin McCarthy is retiring at the end of the month. That means with still a year to go in his term, leaving the Republicans with it's either a one or a two vote majority, two seat majority in the House. And they've got at least two octogenarians in the Republican caucus in the House. So they're hanging by a thread. The smartest thing I read today was so and I don't know who said it was a comment saying that the Democrats need to be on the ball because the minute, the minute their number falls below the majority, someone's got to introduce a motion to vacate the speaker and they need to, you know, put Hakeem Jeffries name in the running and begin to take back control of the house because it's that close. And number four, number four is, um, Time Magazine, without any buildup today, dropped 
the name of their person of the year. Now, usually they build up for a week or two and they tell you the not, you know, the finalists and all this and there's speculation on who it's going to be. Well, today's December 6th. So it's very early. And I'm guessing when they decided it was going to be Taylor Swift, they said, let's just get it out there now and stop the speculation. And uh, you know what? The, the person of the year Their actual rules is the person who most influenced the headlines in the previous year. It was that Taylor Swift. I don't know. But the one thing I read was, you know, they chose joy, the person who gave the most people joy this year. And considering the year we've had, joy is a good way to go. Not a Taylor Swift fan, though I don't have a problem with her. It's just not my kind of music, but um, more power to them. Um, oh my God. Truck, uh, uh, some Jan in the chat room, somebody's daughter teaches at UNLV sex ed and environmental science shooter was in her building. She is safe and shook up at home. Police came into her classroom and told them to run and get the hell out of the building. The shooter's dead. Just another day in America, everybody. All right. With all that, What else is there to do but talk about the weather? Oh, if only I could play music. There are so many great weather songs. I know it's not weather, it's climate. All right. With that being the case, time to say, take it away, Desi Doyen and me. All right. I know I promised she'd be here on Monday, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's Wednesday. It's actually Tuesday night, but um, Desi Doyen returns to the point twice in, in, in as many weeks. This is I know um, unheard of, but you are back <laughs> in your studio in Los Angeles yep. and you and Brad at the broadcast don't do a video thing. So people can sort of see what goes on. Well, your studio kind of, sort of, yeah, a little bit of it, a little bit. <laughs> anyway, that's where the magic happens in case anyone was wondering. So Desi Doyen <laughs> is, um, well, you, you, you do all kinds of stuff and I, it should be called the Brad and Desi blog, but I, I won't say that out loud. Cause I, <laughs> I know, I know when, you know, years ago when I used to work with Mark and Brian, people would say, Oh, it should be Mark and Brian and Nicole. And I'd go, Oh, please don't say that. Cause I know I'd get hell for the next week. <laughs> so True. I didn't say that. Um, But but anyway, Desi Doyen is the woman behind the Green News Report and the broadcast. But um, and, uh, you know, the reason I've been wanting to talk with you is because, uh, boy, it seems like I guess I guess our climate problems are fixed because I'm not (laughs) hearing any problems in the news or. Oh, but wait, when I hear the Green News Report. When yeah. I hear the Green News report, I realize that everything is not fixed. It's just the mm-hmm. corporate media ignoring the problem as usual. Yep. Yep. That's pretty much it. So there are two big events that preceded or or in this case are going on at the same time, but but are precipitated this conversation. One is the release just a couple of weeks ago of the fifth national climate assessment. Mm-hmm. Something that happens every five years. So I guess the first one was done 25 years ago because I'm a brilliant uh, you know, mathematician. I don't actually remember when the first one was done, <laughs> well, to be are, honest. If they're every um, five years. That, that it was delayed during oh. the uh, Trump administration. Oh. So this um, actually is uh, coming out. It's it's pretty huge. It's required by law. And it is a really comprehensive report of how climate change is specifically affecting the United States and every region about it. So it's intended to inform policymakers and help people to understand at the local level, um, especially for local policymakers, how climate change is affecting them, what is happening right now, and what is expected to happen in the future. So if you are somebody who is a city manager in 
Florida or a city manager in, say, Washington state, you have very different things that you're planning for and looking out for. So in Florida, Hmm. you'd be looking out for rising sea levels and um, really, really high heat and humidity levels. Whereas in Washington, you'd be looking out for uh, wildfires and also really high, hot heat heat levels, but not with as much humidity. So you have to sort of plan ahead if you're a city manager to figure out, okay, what are my emergency responses going to be for these particular things? What do we need to plan for roads and bridges and uh, electricity, like in Texas, you know, do we have enough supplies ready for what's happening right now? And then what's going to be happening in the future that you have to plan for now because it takes a long time to build stuff. Right. So I, I'm, I'm more, I, I need to go back a second, Des, because you said something about the last one was, it was delayed by the, the Trump administration. Yeah, I remember so, being like, you know, they didn't release it on time or something. So uh, I, I'm trying to remember oh, it's gotcha. a vague, okay. uh, I, I have just, a vague memory that it's been, that, you know, that they waited until like the end to release it, but of it takes course five years to put together. And so the point about that though, is that it does mean that some of the science is a little bit delayed right. um, or old because they had to have it all in by a year ago to be able to write out everything. So you can go to the National Climate Assessment um, online. You can read it all yourself. You can look at your individual area. And in fact, it even has an interactive tool. It's not that easy to use, but it is there. And you can look down at the county and block level, like, you know, what are the projections for sea level rise for your particular county, which is really important if you're a coastal county, really important if you're in Florida. Okay. So to get there, you would, uh, I guess you go to NCA 2023, right? Right. Right. Scroll down and find that. And you can find all the previous reports there as well. Okay. So it's all here. I'll put a link on the blog with all the, the stuff for today. My, my show descriptions are nowhere near as comprehensive as yours are for the broadcast, <laughs> just so you know, I put basically okay. nothing, but, but when a link is necessary, I do put that. So I will okay, put good. this yeah. there. So the, um, it's globalchange.gov is the, is the big, um, I guess that's the overall, um, um, I want to call it an agency. It's really just sort of the office that coordinates. It's made up of 13 federal agencies that then submit data and, uh, and their own report. And it's all integrated together by the global change.gov people. It's a huge undertaking. Obviously. And, and, (laughs) you know, you would think looking at the side, right. I am. And you would think with all of this, that, you know, it only happens once every five years. You would think that there would be some hoopla surrounding it. But honestly, if not for the Green News report and the broadcast, and I think you said there was a segment on Chris Hayes. And yes, I'm guessing Democracy Now! probably did something. Yeah, but, they did a little bit. Okay. So, you know, it didn't really get out. I mean, but basically, you know, I've got it all like right here. So the the warming is worsening across the United States and it is hurting people right now. And it is going to get worse, but there are things that we can do to mitigate that damage and to adapt to the uh, impacts that we're no longer able to avoid because we've waited so long as a planet to be able to cut our emissions that cause global warming. So um, it does say the the U.S. is warming 60% faster than the rest of the world. <gasps> and that has uh, partly to do with our geographic location um, and our placement on the planet. Um, also that Alaska is warming even faster than that. So like the lower 48 have increased 1.4 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Uh-huh. And Alaska has warmed 2.3 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and I, so I just it, put up this does... chart and I guess con U.S. is continental U.S., and there's right. continental U.S. and Alaska. And you can see mm-hmm. when Alaska is in it, how much it goes up. And then this chart goes from 1895 to 2015. So it's not even up to today. But then this, the U.S. has warmed rapidly since the 1970s. So there's all yeah. kinds of information here. Should you care to take uh, the time to check it out? Uh, it's pretty fascinating stuff and, and frightening, too. 
Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, the right now the U.S. is paying on average about one hundred fifty billion dollars a year for climate related extreme weather disasters. This year, 2023 was actually even worse than that. Uh, We spent, I think, one hundred and seventy eight billion so far. We got a month left. So we'll see. If any other billion dollar weather events uh, show up, we're already at a record. I think it's twenty seven billion dollar weather events this year alone. That's a record. And that's uh, weather events that cost a billion dollars or more in uh, damage and losses and economic impacts. So we're definitely going in the wrong direction on that one. Obviously. Now, you mentioned the U.S. is warming faster than the rest of the planet. You said uh, due to our geographic location and a lot of that. How about um, due to American um, gluttony? Like our, you know, (laughs) sure, absolutely. But, you know, that would not necessarily be something that you could say, oh, you know, we're releasing more CO2 over the U.S., therefore we're going to be warmer. It's uh, more of an average, I mean, because global warming is not going to be uniform. So that's why they always talk about global average temperature or U.S. average temperature. It's going to be warmer in some places than in others, Um, you know. Nebraska might have a colder than normal winter, right. but Maine might have a warmer than nor- than normal winter. So those will be averaged together. So, so you mean when I believe it was Chuck Grassley who brought a snowball onto the floor of the Senate? No, it was oh. James Inhofe. Oh, it was James Inhofe. Of course yeah. it was. And he said, look, it's a snowball. Obviously, there's no <laughs> global warming. Because it still snows. And of course, there's still going to be snow and winter because winter is not going to go away as a season. The the planet is still going to have its tilt and its orbit that creates the seasons. It just means that, you know, winter is warming overall. And on top of that, uh, climate change, because heat puts more energy into the atmosphere, it also turbocharges extreme weather disasters and events of all kinds. So, yeah, sure, you're going to have some really heavy snowfalls because, a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. So it's going to dump more rain when it's above 32 degrees and it's going to dump more snow and ice when it's below 32 degrees. We're going to see less snow as the average temperature of winter warms up. But yeah, you're still going to get winter snow bombs because extreme weather is what climate change does. It turbocharges and intensifies all of it. Right. And that's why it, it, it used to be referred to as as global warming, right? And now it, it is it climate change, is. but it, well, it is. So but, I want to dispel okay, a little please. bit of a, of a thing here because scientists have always called it global warming and climate change because climate change actually encompasses a broad variety of impacts. So climate change includes sea level rise. Climate change includes, you know, um, animal migration. Climate change includes other aspects that can be also put in under global warming. So scientists use it interchangeably. Frank once once came in and said, hey, you know, use use climate change because it's less scary than global warming. But it wasn't in order to it wasn't something that scientists were doing. They've been using it interchangeably the entire time. Gotcha. And and it, it, the, the planet is getting warmer. And the climate is changing and they are, they work in concert. And just because it's the planet's getting warmer doesn't mean we're not going to have these Arctic blasts or whatever. I mean, the names for the different phenomena, actually, because, um, you know, the Arctic blasts, you know, that is related to climate change. So the top of the planet, you know, where the Arctic is, you know, that's an ocean, a sea covered with ice. When you lose sea ice, it warms up the water because the water is dark the ice is not there anymore to reflect the sun so it warms up the water that warms up the air the atmosphere above the water that in turn changes the direction and the speed of the jet stream which drives weather systems across the united states so yeah when it it starts to like you know like if you have a top and it's spinning really fast well this is slowing it down so it's starting to slow down Mm. and wobble and when it wobbles it's like opening up the refrigerator door and some cold air spills out because it's no longer being kept hemmed in by that that uh high wind of the jet stream so that's that's kind of a a way of explaining how those are interacting now that is considered an emerging area of science that the warming in the arctic is changing the jet stream but it's getting more and more supported by decades of data now so um they haven't quite not everybody's on board with that but it seems like it's pretty clear that that is the mechanism that's going on and it'll take a little bit more time for climate scientists to accept 
that that's the mechanism. Yeah, there, there's a okay. lot. There's a lot. So, Desi, I got to ask you, I know your background is not in science. How did you become so um, uh, zoned in on climate, on 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 this kind of stuff? Right. My background is not specifically in science. I had started uh, in journalism, you know, after a whole other career. And then I started journalism. And uh, that has been something that Finally, Brad was like, listen, you're really annoying me with all this science and global warming stuff. So why don't you just do a podcast with Green News Report? I'll help you with that. And then we can we'll do it there. But he's also more interested in it now. And and it's not like you have to be a physicist to understand this. You know, if you read the studies and there are lots of excellent, by the way, excellent climate science communicators out there who are also really, really good at reading the data, reading the studies and then translating them into normal humans speak for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not something where you have to be a scientist to communicate what's actually happening in the, on the planet right now with global warming. So it just sounds something to me that it seemed like this is something that really needs to be covered. I find it really fascinating. Both of my parents are engineers. So we had a lot of science books in the house and stuff. So that to me, I guess was, I was already sort of interested in it as it was. Gotcha. And it's not like you live in a hotbed of, well, climate activity, like in Florida. I couldn't wait to get out of there for a number of reasons, but one of them was I really didn't want to live through another hurricane. And when we were supposed to leave last year by in April and, um, or the beginning of the year in April, Um, and, and I thought, oh, I won't have to, you know, be here through another hurricane season. And we were through most of it. And look, it's already December hurricane season ended on the 30th. So they escaped without another, a major hurricane, at least least hitting and hitting the East coast. You know, there were hurricanes that came in through the wherever, but you know, where I was in Southeast Florida, we, we got lucky and I don't think um, they will be lucky that much longer. No, definitely not. Now, see, the thing about El Nino is that, you know, it's in the Pacific Ocean, so it kind of pushes the uh, hurricanes, kind of causes them to push away. I'm trying to see if I can do it from this angle. I'm not sure. Yeah. So it pushes it. It tends to push them, wave them off of the East coast, but every once in a while, a hurricane will slip through when the conditions are just right. So uh, Florida is going to escape hurricanes this year, this year. Um, but probably not next year because the El Nino is expected to uh, wane sometime in the early 2024, maybe mid 2024. And then that protection is gone. And 2024 is expected to be an even hotter year oh than God. the 2023. So that's going to be even more heat everywhere? energy to fuel those hurricanes. <laughs> everywhere. Yes, and I everywhere. say it like that because I'm in Arizona. And right now, I got to tell you, the weather is beautiful, gorgeous. It's like in the high 60s, mid 70s each day. It gets chilly at night, like this morning when my Jackson gets me up at uh, dark (laughs) o'clock, five ish. Um, It's in the 40s. uh, So it's cold. And, you know, David and I, he puts on the space heaters because he can't handle. And so it's a weird weather fluctuation here. But but the point I'm trying to make clumsily is that the weather has been magnificent. And I um, I can't imagine 116 degrees, which is, I guess, what they had here last summer. Yeah, it's going to be hot. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, I, I sent you some email things on stuff you can do to be prepared for the heat there. I was thinking about, you know, the Cybertruck, Elon Musk's Cybertruck. I'm sure you've seen it. It's this weird oh, monstrosity. Yeah, the, the DeLorean just, looking thing that's not yeah, as cool as a like, DeLorean. It looks yeah. like some kid's 16-bit drawing of a truck, yeah, maybe. Right. And I was just thinking, wow. Last summer in Phoenix, there were people who would fall down on the pavement and get third degree burns. Can you imagine a Cybertruck just straight steel sitting out there flat in the sun? Uh, Don't fall against a Cybertruck. You will get burns. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really it gets really hot there. So don't fall down on the pavement. Well, then we'll be able to use the pool. (laughs) Yes, that's great. It may be a hot tub. But it's too cold now. So I guess, yeah. Anyway, I digress. So, all right. So there's this national climate assessment. And basically the people that are using it are the states in planning on how they're going to deal with the next five years 
of climate well, it events. It also gives projections right? beyond that, too. But it's basically saying, here's what we know so far. And in five years, we'll tell you what more we know. But right now, this is what we know so far and what you can do to plan and, you know, go ahead. So, like, um, it says that heat is increasing in frequency and intensity. So are extreme events like storms and floods. We're also getting increased cases of infectious and vector-borne diseases because mosquitoes and ticks the warming, you know, is moving upward in latitude. So they're expanding their ranges, moving to places where they never were before. So that's right. In fact, there was a story uh, just last week, I think about desert, is it desert fever that used to be oh, endemic? To valley, this, fever. valley fever. Yeah, valley to, fever. To, and that, that's in dust. And that is something where you also have to be careful about that, uh, specifically in Arizona, because it, it is a bacteria that uh, comes up and, and gets lodged in your lungs. If you breathe in, you know, right? the dust, it can get lost, lodged and now in your that lungs is and spreading cause all kinds of horrible stuff. Yeah. From Arizona and the southwestern deserts, up north. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not, it's, yeah, it's going north as the planet warms, I guess. Right. As its range extends to that, that enables that. I, I think it's a, I think it's a virus and I'm not a bacteria, but regardless, it, it, it allows its, its range to expand so that it can thrive in areas where it never thrived before and infect people there. It's the same thing with basically all vector borne diseases. They're all getting an expanded range. Lucky us. Hey, Aren't we? Yeah, no, so there's other a benefit things that are going everything. on. Yeah. yeah. So like in the Southwest where you are now, more drought, extreme heat and reduced water supplies. Um, as you all know, with yes. Arizona being the last man on the list when it comes to Colorado River water, that's going to be a problem. Um, the Northeast is getting more extreme heat and flooding, and that's causing risks to infrastructure and crops and poor air quality because of Canadian fires. Um, and also sea level rise. And that's another thing about sea level rise. It's also not uniform around the world. So when they say an average sea level rise, it's going to be a lot more on the East Coast because mm. the U.S. East Coast, the way its topography and uh, is is arranged, basically, it you know, the water of the ocean sloshes back and forth like a big gigantic bathtub. Right. And it is sloshing more into the North Coast, the East Coast of the U.S. And that's going to be a problem because it's not as bad a problem for California because we're not in that area where it's going to rise quite as much as it's going to in the east coast of the United States. So and like Florida that is going to have some storm real problems. Florida and and New York up to mm-hmm. New England. So they yep. keep getting hit by these nor'easters and even hurricanes that that instead of hitting the Florida coast take a right turn and go up the coast and hit up you know, Cape Cod area. Everybody's going to get hit by more storms wow. and everybody on the East Coast is going to get hit by faster sea level rise than the rest of the world. Wow. Okay. I mean, to be honest, I'm glad you're not in Florida anymore. Me too. I, I feel well, bad I'm glad for folks in Florida for a lot of because reasons. it's going to be super hard um, once it, in, in a couple of decades. And I don't know exactly the timing of it, but you know how Florida sits on porous limestone? Mm-hmm. It sits on top of a sponge. So mm-hmm. sea level rise is actually coming up from underneath yes. and is already contaminating the fresh water supplies. It's called saltwater intrusion. That's right. going to get even worse. So even before sea level rise, say, you know, wipes out Miami, I think there's going to be bigger problems before then because there's going to be issues with drinking water. Oh, lovely. Well, there already is. Florida water is disgusting. You have to drink oh, puddled water, but okay. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, it, it is when you look at it in those terms, it's it's frightening. Um, yeah. When we talk about this stuff happening, I mean, we are discussing things that are happening in the immediate now, you know, like this coming summer, where a yes. lot of these things are going to be happening. Um, it, we're not talking about in, you know, in the future, we're talking about we're, we're here right now. now. Yeah. Right now. And that is what the entire national climate assessment is about. It's like, this is not a future thing anymore, folks. It never really was, but it's really, really hitting hard now. And it's going to only cost us more every single year from here on out. Um, and that's why it's important to turn to policymaking in order to prepare. So for example, if you're in Florida and you're a city planner, you have zero political backing to begin the conversation of managed retreat. 
Whereas in California, there are some communities that are already talking about managed retreat. Like there's um, there's a highway in Ventura, California. There's places where, uh, you know, recent storms over the last couple of years have knocked out roads and bridges, like especially along, you know, the Big Sur coastline. Right. Where, but, but, but down, down, you know, at, at coast level, there are places like in Oxnard where they're saying, ah, you know, we're going to have to start pulling back this sidewalk, this road, oh, wow. this beachfront um, facility that we have. And they're already having that conversation about where are we going to move and, and how are we going to do it over time? Oh, boy. That's going to take like 30 years. You know, for example, another example of how sea level rise is already impacting the United States, Norfolk, Virginia, the shipyards, the Navy shipyards that are there, they have a problem with high tide flooding on sunny days already. And when you think about all of the coastal military facilities like the shipyards, if they're already having problems now and there's projection of, oh, I don't know, a foot of sea level rise. Over just, I don't know, we could say very conservatively a foot of sea level rise over the next 50 years. How long is it going to take to move the Navy shipyards and where are you going to move it to? Where are you going to move Washington, D.C.? Oh, you're not. Right. So it's better to not have to do all these things. It's better to mitigate the problem before it gets that bad. Oh boy. And that all takes money to do this kind of shoring up work in addition to the emergency funds after every big, you know, thousand year storms that's happening every year or two. Right. Right. You know, so for example, um, the Biden administration, they just uh, released a whole bunch of funding to increase wildfire resilience. And part of the problem has been that over time, because we've had this surge in wildfires getting more intense and bigger and these sort of epic mega fires in the Northwest and the West, that the U.S. US Forest Service has had to raid funding from its operations and its future prevention fund in order to pay for current fires and they're running out of money. They run out of money every single year. I'd have to ask Congress for an additional supplemental. But if you're rating your future prevention fund, then you're you're setting yourself up for failure and higher costs later. Yeah. It's setting us um, all up because, you know, of course, taxpayers pay for all of this. Yeah. This this raises another whole question. Um and I'm trying to think of a, you know, a smooth way to get there. Let, <laughs> let me go. let me just stop down for a second and say, in addition to the, the National Climate Assessment that came out a few weeks ago, right now, as we speak, COP28 is underway mm-hmm. in Dubai yep. this year. Right. So yep. all the world's I don't know who, who goes to who goes to these things. Everybody. Um, but that's, of course, it's, it's bigger than ever before. It's actually become uh, more of a conference, like a convention, yeah. which is really strange for people who've been covering it for a long time. They're like, you know, it used to be just policy wonks, scientists and, you know, uh, civil society, civil organizations, you know, non-governmental organizations right. and and leaders from different governments trying to hammer out, OK, what are we going to do? But it has since become a place where it's I think this is the largest cop ever where they're saying there's like 70,000 people and there's like, you know, a whole uh, area of the convention center that is set aside for people to sell stuff and of have course, their booths. Each country has its own booth. So you've got to you get a you know, swag really bag from the <laughs> right. kind of get a swag, swag you get bag a fan. From <laughs> right from yes. OPEC. And yes, but, fans, and it should, yeah. So I should say that it's a C, uh, the COP 28 it's conference of parties. Okay. So the conference of parties to the United Nations, um, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So that's why they call it COP28. I got you. And this is the 28th annual gathering. And it has been doing, a. you know, there's been a lot of stuff that's come through, but I'll let you ask your question. Is it, is it, was it COP or am I getting that confused with, you know, some other gathering of, of world leaders where the, the private planes line up at the local oh, airport. You're thinking of Davos, I'm thinking probably. of Davos. Yeah. Yeah. The Davos, so, the world economic yes, forum. So, and yes. yeah, I mean, it's really, it's horrible and stupid mm-hmm. that, you know, these people take private jets. They yes. should not do that. Private jets should probably be banned except for the most um, Urgent, extreme circumstances right. where, you know, you have to have security, but um, yeah, but, but it also, we should point out though, that, that 
aviation is not really a huge contributor to global warming. It's only like 3% of total global emissions, but it's an easy way to punch at, you know, folks who are claiming to care about the climate, but then, you know, don't do so in their own personal lives, make any changes. Gotcha. Well, so this is going on. And, you know, one thing I'm thinking about as you're talking about the effects on our shorelines Mm -hmm. is a lot of nuclear power plants are built on the coast, probably, right? And and uh, I don't understand why, to put the wastewater? You don't want it going in no, the ocean. So, but- so basically um, you'll find all nuclear power plants are going to be next to a water source because they have to have them to cool the towers gotcha. to keep the reactors from, uh, from you know, melting down, yes. that's kind of a thing. And um, the thing about with that is that in certain areas, it's mostly easiest to do it on the coastline. But, you know, when you have an internal domestic nuclear power plant. This is a big problem in France where your rivers get too hot, you know, because it's summertime. So the Uh river water temperature rises. If you suck it in and you, and you uh, send it back out as a nuclear power plant, you cycle the cooling water. If you don't recycle it inside the closed system, you uh, dump it into the river and there are laws against how hot the water can be before you dump it in that river because it'll kill all the fish in the river. So wouldn't the radioactivity nuclear- kill the fish too? Uh, no, they, they treat it before oh, that. Okay. It's not radioactive water that they're sending out. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's basically just really warm water. Gotcha. And that's why they're they're next to coastlines. But yeah, the other problem, especially in the United States, is that, you know, we don't have nuclear reprocessing of waste because we have laws against that non-proliferation laws that prevent uh, the United States from supporting reprocessing of nuclear waste like in France. Uh And the problem with that means that in a lot of cases, nuclear waste is stored at the power plants. So if you've got, say, the San Onofre power plant down in uh, down near San Diego, yeah, it is. that's been shut down because it had horrible problems and it has cracks throughout and it was too expensive to repair. The company did not want to spend the couple billion that it would take to repair it. So it's just sitting there. And looking like two giant breasts right off the five as you drive into San Diego. Yeah, you got it. And um, that nuclear waste is still being stored there. So Lovely. yes, that's going to be also or, a long-term problem with managed retreat. What are you going to do? Or you have Turkey Point in, in Florida on the coast, yeah. which should have been out of commission probably 20 years ago, but I think is still in use and it sits on the coast and that can't yeah. be a good thing. It's not, it's not. And that's going to be one of those looming problems that nobody's really ready to talk about just yet because, you know, we have, Republicans in Congress that prevent us from actually doing really a whole lot that would make sense to be doing right now. Right. So knowing conservative Democrats that prevents that as well. So Desi Doyen, knowing that I was going to be talking to you today and I start looking up, okay, what stories are coming out of COP28? The headline is at AP at COP28, John Kerry unveils nuclear fusion strategy as a source of clean energy. Well, so nuclear fusion, um, here's the thing about nuclear. Yes. So I'm not a fan of nuclear myself. However, existing nuclear plants are zero emissions electricity generators. Okay. Zero emissions now. So the theory here for for a lot of climate scientists, John Kerry set him aside for just a moment. So the theory is that we have to get off fossil fuels as fast as possible. We have to stop fossil fuel emissions as fast as possible. And to do that, it doesn't make sense to close zero emissions electricity generation before you close fossil fuel generation. True. So you close the fossil fuels first, and then you can start phasing out the existing nuclear plants after you've replaced all of the electricity from fossil fuels already. That way you cut the emissions that are causing global warming, and then you can deal with the zero emissions existing nuclear plants. Now, I have personally an issue with the investment that the United States does in new nuclear because there are lots of experimental uh, nuclear plants that are underway right now. There's something called small modular reactors, which are really pretty much just their name. They're smaller and you can add on to them because they're modular, but they haven't actually reached any sort of commercial viability yet. So the idea that Kerry is doing, I think, 
you know, is kind of a sop to the nuclear energy industry because, you know, they have some pretty hefty weight and they can lobby to stop everything if they want to mm-hmm. um, and have and make a good dent on delaying progress. So I'm not sure exactly what Kerry is trying to do here, but I think it probably has to do with we're going to need everything we possibly can. It's going to take probably 10 to 20 years to get these nuclear new nuclear plants in place. We don't have that kind of time, but it makes sense to go ahead and research and make sure we know that we're not closing off any avenues of zero emissions energy generation that we can. So I think that that's probably where that strategy comes from. Got it. I I, I just, you know, I, I still freak out over Fukushima, or yeah. as you pronounce of course. it, Fu- Fukushima. Of course. <laughs> You know, well, it depends. You know, I talked to a Japanese person and they said it's uh, it's Fukushima, Fukushima. But, you know, Fukushima. And it's like uh, Hiroshima. Right. And, and so gotcha. anyway, I, I have a problem with not saying it the American way. But um, yeah, I mean, for most people, it makes you very uncomfortable because who wants to live next to, you know, a nuclear power plant? You know, sure, it's got a great track record, except for the times when it doesn't. That's and it right. can make a whole region uninhabitable for many, many years. And you know, so I find it to be not a great risk reward calculation. Um, and I also find that the money that we invest in nuclear could be better spent deploying solar and wind as fast as possible. But you know, that's not the world we live in. The world no. we live in is that, oh, you can have this much money from renewable. But if you want to get this passed in Congress, then to get the funding for it, you're going to have to do some of these other things over here in order to say, okay, fine, you can have this much for nuclear as long as we get that much for renewables. So it's a compromise and a political calculation. Yeah. Um, and, and meanwhile, uh, to, uh, on Friday, I guess, last week, Japan and Europe said they were launching the world's largest fusion reactor. So it doesn't really matter what we do here. It's, you know, what the rest of the world is doing. And, and it looks like this is what they're doing. Right. You know, France and Japan have very strong nuclear lobbies, very strongly, very politically powerful nuclear sectors. So that's part of the reason why they're doing it. I mean, if I were Japan, I wouldn't do it. No, They're not asking me for my opinion because, you know, that's what they think that they have to have. And they (sighs) have, you know, they have specific in Japan, they have specific, you know, geographical issues. It's really hard for them to put solar panels, you know, on the mountains. Because it's a very mountainous island. So I can see, you know, they're making calculations as well. I think that they would probably do better with their money being invested in other types of renewables. But again, they didn't ask me. So what else is coming out of um, COP28? It's been going on for like, how long does this thing last? Uh, It started on December 1st and it's about two weeks long. And so you'll see uh, at the beginning, there's always a lot of, you know, positive announcements and everybody's signing on to pledges and you know what matters is whether or not they actually follow through on those pledges and you know there's mixed results mixed bag of results on that over the over the years but it does make a difference you know when they make these pledges that they do kind of put markers down for okay now we can name and shame you later for not meeting your pledges and then towards the end Um, I think it ends on December 12th. You're going to see a lot of news headlines about contentious negotiations and how they're not reaching agreement and it's a failed cop. And it it very well might be because there are some pretty huge, huge issues being tackled this time. So one of them is called the global stock take. This one is this year is unique because built into the Paris agreement is a, uh, a period of every five years. Everybody has to report how they're doing how close they are, take stock, global stock take, take mm-hmm. stock of where they are and where they need to be. And nobody is on track right now to meet their pledges. So that gives you an idea of how far off we are. Um, they're not on track to meet their pledges for 1.5 degrees Celsius or two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. But that stock take, you know, is is highly contentious because they've all reported where they are. And now they're going to try to come up with a a document that finishes it out that talks about, okay, here's where we are and here's where we're going to go. And the problem is that every single country, every country has to be unanimous. It has to be a unanimous vote. So you'll find that, oh, Brazil decided they don't want to, they don't like this word. 
and they're going to have that word struck. Right. And Saudi Arabia, for example, Saudi Arabia and Russia, specifically Saudi Arabia, very much so right now, is against the other big contentious part, in addition to the global stock take, is what's to do about fossil fuels. Because it seems like, hey, everybody knows fossil fuels are the problem. Right. So the problem will now be getting language into the negotiations that says a global phase out of fossil fuels. And that's how Saudi Arabia makes their billions, trillions, right. zillions. And they're very, very, very not happy about the idea of having a fossil fuel phase out. What they're <laughs> saying is that they want it to be, I had it, where did I put it? Uh, I don't have it over here. But anyway, the the point that they're basically saying is that you can have either a fossil fuel phase out or a phase down. And those two words, out or down, are going to be what the big fight is over because Saudi Arabia says no phase out. Zero, we are not going to sign on to that. So now John Kerry, the climate envoy, is talking about, okay, so those are the words you don't want. What words do we need to do to get to yes here? So would it be a fossil fuel phase down or a phase down of unabated fossil fuels? So abated versus unabated. That's, you know, their term for carbon capture and sequestration. So oh, if you're yeah, a power yeah, plant yeah, yeah, yeah. and you're a coal fired power plant, your lifeline is carbon capture. You have to capture all of the carbons, the CO2 from your operations and bury it somewhere or send it off somewhere to be buried or used in some other application. Problem is that it's not economical right now. It's super expensive, super energy intensive. And the International Energy Agency just came out like I don't know, a couple of days before the cop started, they came out with a, a report saying, listen, carbon capture is a fantasy. There is no way that we can ever replace or take all of the, the fossil fuels that we're doing right now. There is just not enough energy in the world to capture all of that carbon and put it somewhere. Right. So that's so basically it's not going to it's it's a fantasy. But in order to get that wording into the treaty document is what I think Kerry is going for right now. Because once you get that in the document that, yes, we're going to phase down unabated, not, you know, fossil fuels without carbon capture, we're going to phase down unabated fossil fuels. Once you get that in the document, then you can start ratcheting up from there. But you got to get it in the document first. Oh, my God. And you're dealing with all these nations around the world that that all have different goals and different priorities. And yeah, and then get- you've got people like, you know, here in the United States, you also have to be aware of Republicans. Of course. And Republicans, not just um, and Joe blocking Manchin. action. And Joe Manchin, not just blocking action, but demonizing it so much and so successfully mm-hmm. as they're very good at doing, capturing the attention of the corporate media in order to say, hey, what what's what's all this then? And then to make it so that it's impossible to get these things through the U.S. Congress, you know, because, for example, uh, just the other day, Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris, was at the COP28 in Dubai, and she made an announcement that, you know, for example, the United States is going to put in $3 billion to the Green Climate Fund, which is a fund for rich countries to help poor developing countries build clean energy and right. not have to go the fossil fuel route. Okay. Um, so that $3 billion has to be approved by Congress. Ain't going to happen with Republicans. Right. But it's critical and necessary because developing countries didn't cause the climate crisis. Rich countries got rich burning fossil fuels. And it really is super unfair to say, hey, developing country, I know your people are still mired in extreme poverty, but you can't use fossil fuels and we're not going to help you use anything else. So that's why these funds and these particular mechanisms are so critical. And Republicans do hold the United States back on helping out the rest of the world. And there's another another big deal that happened in COP23. Do we have time? Oh, yeah. Okay, COP28, I should say. Um, The Loss and Damage Fund. That has been a 30-year effort by developing countries to get the rich world to pay for the damages that they're causing in the developing world, like, for example, 
you know, Pakistan, right. having floods that covered 20% of the country. Yeah. They're still struggling from that. That was like a year and a half ago. Wow. And they don't have the money. They don't have the capacity to deal with the emergency as it's happening, the disaster as it's happening, much less be able to prepare their infrastructure and build clean energy on top of that. I mean, they don't have the money, the capacity, you know, to, to, to do what needs to be done to keep their people safe. And that's why I think rightly the uh, developing countries have been pushing for the loss and damage fund to come into existence. And they finally agreed last year at the COP last year to create the loss and damage fund, which was a huge victory because rich nations were, especially the United States saying, no, nah, we don't, we don't want to do that. Cause if we right. agree to pay for your losses and damages, then you can take us to international court maybe and demand that we pay for everything else. And they have a point. Yeah, That's they do. exactly what developing countries could and probably should do because they're not responsible for what's happening. To you them. know, that, that is a huge bone of contention that not only developing countries, but some of these small countries like the Mm -hmm. Maldives, which is basically underwater. And I know they had at one of the climate things one year, they, they did it all underwater to make a a point. And they had their, their statements on, you know, signs that they could hold up as they're wearing scuba gear. Um, They bear the brunt of the damage that the big, behemoths like the United States and China and India do to the planet. They, they contribute to it the least, but they have the most fallout from it. Yeah. And they're being hit first and worst. And so Vanuatu, for example, just signed a uh, migration, uh, not Vanuatu, Tuvalu, sorry, Tuvalu just signed a migration agreement with Australia, which I just thought was, you know, yay, Australia saying, okay, good. We'll, we'll, take, we'll take your people. your people. But how tragic, Ugh. how tragic that this way of life is going to disappear. And they're giving them a lifeline so wow. that they have a place to go. So I always loved I mean, that's Australia. The of what we're and, and seeing, you so. know, and speaking of Australia, a scuba diver here, though I haven't in many years, I always thought someday I'd dive the Great Barrier Reef. But the Great Barrier Reef is is dying as yeah. are the reefs off the coast of Florida. Yes. Because they're, yes. Those they're are bleaching marine they're- heat waves, right? The marine heat waves are also increasing ocean heat hit a record this year. The oceans absorb about 90% or so of the heat that is generated by human activities that are trapping the heat of the planet um, in the atmosphere. So yep. that heat has got to go somewhere, goes into the ocean and it's actually kind of scary the studies that have been coming out lately about how far down the heat has now gone. So instead of just being surface warming, it's it's getting farther and farther, further down into the ocean. And that has enormous impacts, you know, like, as you know, on coral reefs, coral reefs are the nurseries of fisheries around the world. I think it's something like a billion people. The ocean is marine seafood is their primary source of protein. So when you kill the corals, you kill all of the wildlife that comes around it. I mean, it's not just a tourism thing. It's a food supply thing for people around the world. We could get really dark here, Desi, and I could ask you, so how many years of life are left on this planet? (laughs) Well, this is a moving target and there is a window Uh, A carbon budget is what they call it before we hit 1.5 degrees um, and then another window carbon budget until we hit two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And we don't really know when those will hit because, you know, we're studying a dynamic system. We're learning about it as we're changing it. Um, And there are some projections that will hit 1.5 degrees Celsius globally, you know, within the next, I don't know seven to 10 years. And, you know, we won't know that we're there until after we've been there for 10 or so years because it's an average thing. So it's the trend. It's not the one year to the next. Um, So, you know, they say that at our current rates of emissions will reach the carbon budget for our best estimate of 1.5. We'll reach that carbon budget within by 2031 or so. Now, now, so that's why the, the basically the goal of the Paris Agreement is here's where we need to go. Now let's back 
you know, uh, backdate it. What's the right word? You know, back calculate how far and how fast we have to cut. And we have to cut emissions faster and faster and faster because we keep emitting the same amount every year rather than cutting it down. So now, we, we had, had a goal. 43% like by 2030. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was We're a goal. Track, so are we? The Inflation Reduction Act. Hang on. We are on track with the Inflation Reduction Act. If the entire Inflation and Reduction Act and all of the projected changes get made and fully funded on schedule without further delays, <laughs> then the United States has a really good chance of meeting its actual target. That well, it said it was going to do in the Paris Agreement. Also a so big gift. We're on track. Yeah, but that's the, the rest of the world is not necessarily that. But was it, you know, we, we've been at this long enough that I remember back in the day when Bill McKibben used to come on the air with me all the time as yeah. he had founded 350.org. And the reason 350 was in there was parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere or yeah. And we passed that. And, and now oh, you're, yeah. I think we're at four. Well, well, it might be even bit 415 or higher now. I haven't looked lately. And 350 was supposed to be basically the point of no return. Yeah, Once we hit that. 350 is our best guess done. of, you know, how, of, of where it was when humanity has flourished. So what we're doing now, we are already outside of the parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere that, um, that, gave rise to humanity and civilization. <laughs> so we're outside of the, uh, we're, we're rapidly going outside of the temperature range for growing corn and growing wheat and other staple crops, growing rice. So things like that, that we really need. We're rapidly moving out of the area where they would be great and helpful. Lovely. Isn't nice. Isn't that yes. fun? Yes. Uh, uplifting content here on the show. <laughs> well, here's you... the uplifting part. Here's yeah. the uplifting part. Yeah. If people vote, if mm. people vote like crazy, if they get everybody that they know to vote climate, you know, regardless of whatever your partisan persuasion is, if you vote for candidates who pledge and actually, you know, will follow through on climate action, climate policies, then we have a really strong chance of not only continuing the, the the really good work that the Biden administration has been doing with, you know, one hand tied behind its back because of Republicans in Congress and Joe Manchin. Yes. If everybody continues to vote for climate conscious candidates in the local level, at the state legislature level, which is super important really because important. they also have a big, strong uh, input on how federal dollars are spent on projects in each state. So local level, state level, and of course the national level, then the United States has a good chance of not just taking care of ourselves, but being able to then be more of a leader than we're able to be right now for the rest of the world. You're, you're, you're the, you're the eternal optimist. I, I'm well, just listen, thinking optimism is a lot easier than pessimism because it gets stuff done. Pessimism well, doesn't get anything done. You're right. Done. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, I took an old friend to task for her statement on Facebook <laughs> the other day, like, oh my God, Joe Biden won't step aside. And, and so we're going to get Donald Trump. And I'm like, what are you, what is wrong with you? Why? Yeah. First of all, Joe Biden shouldn't step aside because he's actually doing a much better job than any of us expected him to. Yes. And you know, who are you going to replace him with? And second of all, stop with the defeatist talk. I'm not willing to concede that Donald Trump will ever get back in the Oval Office. So yeah, I get, I get it. But, but yeah, the, the, the only dark... way he gets back in the office is if people don't turn out to vote like Hello. in droves like we did in 2016 and 2020. I mean, in 2020 and 2022, I mean, those those are should be big signs to people that, yes, when people turn out to vote, the people make a difference. Can you tell the college kids that? You know, I think they'll come around to it because they're not stupid. They're, you know, emotional. They're figuring out where. They, how they feel about things. I mean, I remember being that age. I'm so glad I didn't have social media to record oh every dumb God, thing I said or it. did. <laughs> so in that respect, um, I think that the, the youth will recognize the importance to their own futures to make sure that Democrats uh, who are climate conscious stay in power. So you know, we'll see. I mean, but they, they won't if people don't hear about it. People don't tell them, hey, by the way, have you thought Hang on, I got an alarm going. Have you thought about how your vote today is going to affect climate all the way through? And, you know, I think it'll take time for 
that to take more prominence and be front of mind for young people. And hopefully as we get closer to the election, it will. Um, yeah, I, I, it's just... <laughs> It's it's hard to to yeah. with everything going on in the world to oh, just yeah. get it all uh, it, put put your ducks in a row as they say, uh, but we've got a lot of problems here. Uh, I it, I can't wait for Festivus. I have many grievances to air. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's coming up in not too long. So you start making the lists. Desi Doyen, thank you so much to everybody listening. You're not hearing enough of this in the corporate media. Most places you're not hearing any of it. So listen for the Green News Report. If you don't hear it where you're listening, well, you're listening to the wrong places, but go to (laughs) greennews.bradblog.com. Listen to the broadcast and and the Green News Report and uh, carry on, I guess. Do we have time for me to say one more thing? Absolutely. Which is that when you reach out to your local media and you tell them what you want to hear, they will listen. They hear all the time from nutty people who tell them, how dare you talk about whatever, you know, the MAGA people. They they talk to the media all the time. They barrage them. And when the good people don't show up, the bad folks, the crazy folks, they fill the void. So by all means, feel free to tell your local and national media what you would like to hear from them, what you Do want them it. to cover. And how about it things that we need to stay alive, you know? That too. Always that, helpful. That would help. Uh, Desi <laughs> Doyen, thank you so much. And, sure. And uh, hopefully we scare some. Not that there's anything we can do. I mean, other than vote and get other mm-hmm. people to be and more help conscious. Other people vote. Exactly. That's what we can do. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's easy to get say, oh, my God, the world's ending. What are we doing this for? We're doing it because we have children and grandchildren. And, you know, yeah. it's it's easy to say, well, shit, I'm old. I'll be gone by the time all this shit hits. But, yeah, the, the, the young people still have lives to live. And let's try to give them every advantage possible. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Do everything you can do as good as you do as much good as you can for as many as you can for as long as you can. That's what Jimmy Carter would say. So um, that's how I works. And okay. with that, works we're done. <laughs> Desi Doyen. All um, right. I know. Um, I oh, promised that's you'd be here. Oops. And it's repeating again. Um, tomorrow, tomorrow, Howie Klein. And of course, we'll start off with uh, my interview with Norman Lear from 2007, because it's the only one I got. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great night and take care of the planet. It's the only one we got. Peace out.